Whether playing on a high school team or an adult league, we all have dreams of playing like the pros. Today, we speak with a successful tech entrepreneur about his latest venture that uses AI to provide amateur athletes with a pro experience. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Um, apropos of our guest today, we um, we might as well talk a little sports. Yeah, I just talked to any of my friends, and that is a topic that will never utter their lips from their lips. <laughs> yeah, let's talk sports. You know that deer in a headlight look comes on, but um, you know, and, and luckily this is a podcast. But people have seen me; it's very apparent right off that probably sports not my number one priority. Hey, you know, but as a dad, oh my gosh, I. Two sons mm. and um, fourteen and about to be twelve, and uh, the younger one especially into all kinds of sports. Really Gymna- cool soccer, gymnastics, all that. Like I've had to like educate myself over a while here, <laughs> and so uh, and now he wants to take up baseball. So we're about to become a baseball Ooh. family. Yes. Okay. So, so had he, did he play t ball years ago or no, anything like this that? Is so like, okay, so he's going right to, to it. Play before, but. The schedule just was never a time that we could make it work. Mm. Um, but now that I'm working from home and the, that schedule's changed a bit, it's no more excuses. So we're like, all right, we're yeah. in. Good for him. That's awesome. Wow. It is. I'm glad that they're into sports. Yeah. I wish I had been more in sports, kid. My poor dad. I mean, I, he has like <laughs> one. I played baseball for a season or two, and he still holds on to the one memory of the time I hit a double. Mm. Like, he he actually brought that up the other day. I'm like, oh, dad, I, I, I really should have worked hard to give you better go, memories. You? you can't let go. Oh, my God. How about you? Were you a oh, sports no. kid? No, so much so that I, um, well, I, I played soccer, you know, uh, because all the kids were playing soccer. So I played soccer. I did T ball. Um, I remember the year I was out, like I was the kid that was like out in the woods or riding my bike around the neighborhood or, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I was just not so much a team sports guy because my parents, I don't think were that much either. But, um, I remember the one year that, uh, my, my dad drove down the street to find me and to ask me because Mr. Bowser, the soccer coach wanted me to play soccer. And my dad gave me the option. And I was like, he said, well, you know, you can play if you want to, but you don't have to. And I said, I, was, I felt like so mature and polite. And I was like, please tell Mr. Bowser that I don't want to play this year. <laughs> I respectfully declined. I respectfully declined. I was like, yes, can I go back to riding my bike around the neighborhood? <laughs> but there, I mean, there is, in addition to all the physical benefits they get, it's just watching them yeah. grow as people while they're playing sports. Like Dan oh, yeah. just came off of basketball. Mm. And, you know, we were joking early in the season. We're like, we should change the name of the team to the Seagulls because they were all like, mine, 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 mine. We oh came my to the God. ball. <laughs> And, you know, and, you know, they were not doing well because they were all more, you know, about getting the ball than actually playing the game. Right. And by the end of the season, you finally saw them kind of gel as a team and, you know, realize that whole team aspect that Mm. they have. And they started winning. And then that time, you know, like he, they they won their first game of the season. He just comes plowing into me with a big hug. Like, I won that. (laughs) I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, buddy. So, you know, there is that. 
that element of you know, I look back, I'm like, I wish I had been more involved you mm. know, to have more of those moments. I think it's such a great thing to get kids involved. Oh, it with. is. Well, and it teaches them a lot of those fundamentals of working with people and communication, and you know, and and actual teamwork and and everything. So there is definitely benefit to it. It's just not for everybody, <laughs> and that's okay too. Those who are, yeah. Now you can track your stats. Is bringing tech to a new level for yeah. them, and I can't wait to get into it. Our guest this week is Jason Syverson. He's the founding member of three successful cyber technology companies and is a board member, investor, and or advisor for multiple other firms who spent his career in New Hampshire with a DC detour. Before founding Siege Technologies in 2009, he was a program manager at DARPA with the Department of Defense. He is also founder and CEO of Sports Visio, a New Hampshire startup applying AI and computer vision to sports analytics. Jason is active in his community, including involvement in the Entrepreneurs Foundation of New Hampshire, coaching youth basketball, and various church and other philanthropic leadership roles. He's the father of six kids and enjoys team sports, outdoor activities, and any sort of strategy game. Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Um, you have an impressive bio. So so much so that if I had to fit it all in, we may have to you know, take up an entire other sl- time slot. But you're an entrepreneur. You're a true techie. Uh, you started your education actually at UMaine um, and have some impressive experience from there. Can you start maybe by taking us on that journey for a bit to sort of set the stage for what's happening today in your life? Sure. No problem. Thank you. So uh, I was uh, grew up in rural Maine, mm. what they call down east, even though it's one of the most northeast parts of the country. Uh, so <laughs> Ellsworth, Trenton, Hancock, Bar Harbor. Uh, my dad was a mechanical engineer working for the paper mills. And when they started shutting down, we went from middle class house on, on the water in rural Maine to uh, poor. Lost the house at the bank. Uh, we were actually homeless for a summer, living in someone's pop-up camper. Kiwanis Club bringing us used Tonka trucks in a Ziploc bag. So we'd have Christmas you know, holes in our socks, food stamps, cutting frozen blocks of wood in the middle of winter so we'd have heat. So it's very, uh, you know, as a kid, you don't realize how poor you are. You're mm. living in a rural, you know, poor part of rural Maine. Most of the people around there are not well off. Um, we were just worse off than they were. Uh, but it, I think, also helped motivate me uh, significantly to try to have a, a better life and not have those challenges. You know, I remember not answering the phone for long periods of time because it would just be bill collectors and they would be, rude and belligerent, harassing you kind of thing. And I got a free ride at University of Maine for computer engineering. Wow. And I uh, had an opportunity to, to get an education, which I wouldn't have been able to afford mm-hmm. otherwise. And all my offers were Portland down to Rhode Island. So two hours away from family. New Hampshire was great because it was about three, mm-hmm. three and a half and close enough to get home on a weekend, but close enough to Boston that I was pretty confident I wouldn't have to worry about a job with my kids which was something that uh, was pretty important to me. So yeah. came what down- What led you into computer engineering? Uh, so my dad was a mechanical engineer, mm. very mechanically inclined, like working on cars and things like that. And I was not. Um, <laughs> I liked chess, but I loved computers, thought, and I was good at math and science and, and wanted a job where I could make a living. So I was like, all right, well, that was a new field that was coming out. I think it was literally one of the first programs. Um, I was part of the first class of computer engineers at UMaine. Computer engineering is a hybrid of electrical engineering and computer science. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of work in either field. You know how to design chips and and circuit boards. You understand the electrical side, but you also know how to program. So a lot of what was happening before that was electrical engineers would end up programming and they didn't know what they were doing. Or you'd have software people who didn't understand low-level hardware 
writing code, but trying to understand devices. But a computer engineer, you straddle both worlds really well. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, it was a super uh, valuable career. I try to encourage as many young people as I can. Uh, in fact, today, there's still so many uh, young people choosing mechanical engineers because they're excited about robotics or, you know, space exploration or mm. things like that. But uh, a huge number of them, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 percent end up going into software because there's just so many jobs in software. Mm -hmm. So um, I try to encourage people, if you're good at engineering, look at computer engineering as a great option. Nice, nice. And so you ended up... Um you ended up working, well, you, you worked for BAE Systems, you worked for the DO, DOD, the, part, the Department of Defense. Um, what is that sort of career, that early career journey like for you? Yeah, so it's a, kind of a fun story. So I nice. had never gotten into uh, hacking as a young man or in college <laughs> because I had, you know, admin privileges on my home computer and in college. And uh, and then the first week of the job at the big defense company, Lockheed Martin at the time, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have admin on my machine. I'm like, whoa, what is this? Like, <laughs> I'm an engineer. I need to be able to touch the machine. And uh, and then so I was fighting to get that at the big company. And at the same time, they, uh, I needed MATLAB to do some of my job. And big company, like, oh, well, the person whose job it is to grant you the license to get MATLAB, they're <laughs> on vacation for the week. So even though we've approved it and it's paid for, you can't get access to the code you need. So I was like, hmm, well, maybe there's a way around this. So oh, I started like, I started hacking Pull on the, the, uh, the com right <laughs> company network and see if I could bypass the license restrictions. <laughs> and I found out how to get it onto my machine a week early um, uh, because after I had gotten uh, approval that it was paid for and authorized. We just needed the person to author yeah. to get it on your machine. I'm like, well, let me see if I can speed that up a little right. bit. I'm going to be that person. And I was successful in doing that. So that kind of really uh, sparked a career for me in hacking. Um, and I started hacking the company network and finding stuff and reporting it to the IT guys. Uh, the lower level people were annoyed and they're like, you're making all this work for us, but their management loved it. And uh, one of them was challenging me. He's like, no, none of those things you're saying are true. And I was like, no, I can get domain admin on this 4,000 person network. Like, no, you can't. And they're like, prove it. And I was like, sweet. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> and I'm like, g give me that in writing and I will happily do so. So wow. I wrote my own like rootkit, my own like messaging uh, system and targeted actually the IT guy who was challenging me. I took his computer to launch the attack and uh, and got domain admin on the full network. Oh, that is Called so him awesome. the next day after I did it. And he's like, how did you do that? I was like, dude, I told you what I was going to do. <laughs> I'm like, you did me. He's like, I don't understand. So I wrote up a whole report, gave it to management. Um, but yeah, after that, I became known and I got a master's at uh, WPI for electrical engineering focused in crypto and security. So Really, my passion was doing that for a career. And they were pushing me on the IT side, but I, I loved research and more of the offensive side. Didn't want to work in the IT world, so uh, ended up standing up a cyber warfare group inside the company after I got the reputation as like the hacker guy oh my God. in electronic warfare company. So I had an older gentleman who was a director who got the funding. He kind of ran the group, and I was the lead tech guy that they put in on all the efforts. And uh, eventually, DARPA recruited me. I went down. I ran a $100 million portfolio of classified programs, commuted to D.C. every week for two years because I couldn't sell my house at the time. Oh, my gosh. And that helped me kind of start the company, and we did the same kind of work. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I still miss those days of 
you know, reverse engineering and exploit development and things like that. That's so awesome. So um, that was early on. And then it was at uh, 2009, you founded Siege. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. So we did, uh, so Siege did the same kind of work. We did uh, offensive, defensive technology development work. So zero day exploits, reverse engineering, nation state weapon systems to find vulnerabilities wow. on the US or foreign side. How do you, uh, our, our real claim to fame was uh, quantification. How do you measure cybersecurity? How do you predict probability of success for a cyber attack? How do you measure your security posture? Uh, we did a lot of reverse engineering, anti-tamper, how do you harden systems so they can't be exploited? And uh, and uh, built the company up and then sold to a private equity back firm. We spun some tech to a venture back firm uh, in 2015, 2016. Uh, they did really well. I think they raised like 18 million in venture capital. Had a couple more companies we wanted to launch in 2016 and ended up selling uh, the firm. And I had a eight-digit exit at that point. Took enough to live on. We donated the rest to a foundation, uh, which I serve as chairman of the board and chief investment officer for. In, and I retired in 2019. Kind of was running that full time. Had took enough to retire. And sorry, how old were you at the time? Uh, I sold. I just turned 40 when I sold the company. Retired about 42. And then, as um, we both look at each other, Matt and I go, <laughs> uh, "What are we doing wrong here?" <laughs> so much. But um, to, to go back uh, to the founding wow. of Siege, wow. what made you want to take that entrepreneurial leap? Um, even you know, being confident and believing yourself in the sure. product—that's a lot to go from what was a very secure job at the time to okay, yeah, let's secure, go into yeah. the unknown. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was a little scary. Um, you know, I took a thirty thousand dollars home equity line of credit. Uh, but honestly, I have to credit my wife for a big part of that. She was super supportive um, in both me getting the job at DARPA because I, I was willing to just grind it out. I was starting to get unhappy at the big company. You know, they're building this big team and I was just kind of in cubicle land and they were like, well, we're hiring these ex-military guys, all these people who didn't really understand security mm. and hacking, but I was just the engineer in cubicle land. Like, oh, just stay in your, in your box. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, what if we moved? So that led to the opportunity at DARPA she was also really encouraging me to start the company, which I was excited about, but her level of commitment, she told me, she's like, what's the worst that happens? We lose our house, we go back to rent, you know, we rent, not the end of the world. And for me, the house was never something that was going to be in play. As a provider, I didn't want to put that risk. Mm. But when I knew she was that all in, I was like, all right, I, I'm going to make this successful, I think, uh, God willing, I'm going to do the best I can. But knowing she had my back, took that level of pressure off. Um, but yeah, like I said, coming out of DARPA, I mean, I had partner agreements with Air Force, Army, Navy, CIA, NSA, and another DOD group that uh, is classified for what we, they did. And uh, they so are. having those relationships, you know, people at Northrop, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, commercial industry, you know, academia really gave me the contacts to be able to, you know, jump off and start the company. And basically the way I did the math, you know, people think I'm a big risk taker, but for me it was a logical thing. It's like going all in in poker with pocket aces. Like, yes, it's a risk <laughs> to go all in, mm. but if you have a strong hand, mathematically, right. it's a high expected value return. Mm. And I mean, you worked very high level. You saw what was out there. You know, what were the gaps you saw in the marketplace that you thought yeah, I yeah. have the solution for? No, that's a great question. Uh, so the, there's a phrase that I learned, um, which I, I really think is true. And it's big companies in, uh, integrate and small companies innovate. Mm. And what I saw at DARPA and before that was all these really cool, great, you know, interesting companies building innovative technology 
They would get acquired by big companies. People would stick around while they had golden handcuffs, and then they got tired of the culture, the big company bureaucracy, the you get your 2% raise every year. Oh, you got to follow all these rules, and you got 10 hours of training every month you got to do. And and people would just leave and say, you know what, this is not for me. And they would go on and join another startup, and they would get built up, and they would get acquired. And I got to know these founders of these companies. I'm like, they're not, they're not anything special that I'm not, right? You have to have a set of core skills, right? You have to uh, be have integrity. People want to have to like you, want to work for you. You have to have a vision of building a, a team. You have to have contacts and a, and a value proposition that people find interesting, ability to execute, right? You can't just have cool ideas and be a nice person. You have to be able to like, get the job done. But if you have all that you know, you can get enough capital to get going, like you can build a business in mm-hmm. that market. And uh, so I uh, got some of them to uh, offer to be advisors uh, when I got started and they were very supportive. Um, so I found some people, I said, hey, would you want to join a cool company like this? They said, yes. And I went to some customers and they said, yeah, we would hire you. So Lincoln Laboratories right down the road. Sure. And basically I had done the math. I said, look, I'm sitting here in New Hampshire. I live in Dunbarton pretty far from Boston. I was like, so I can either drive to, I didn't want to go back to the big company. So I can either drive all the way to Boston and spend an hour and a half each way in the car, which would be miserable. Or I can start a division for someone else, which if it takes off, maybe I get a hundred grand. And Mm -hmm. if it fails, they fire me. Or I can start my own thing, which if it takes off is worth millions. And if it fails, I lose 30 grand. So like from a return perspective, I was like, let's take the shot. Now I'm never going to have a better opportunity than coming out of this government job having all these contacts, you know, let's take a shot and see what happens. And and I was very grateful that it worked out. And you achieved the the tech dream. But and, and, yeah. and so this next question, the answer may be obvious since you already talked about eight figure exit, but you obviously got to a point, uh, a, a, a pivotal point in the company where the choice was either we continue to grow this or we sell. And so as a founder, how did you come to that decision? Yeah, great question. Uh, honestly, my COO uh, was the one pushing me to do that. We'd been doing it for a while, and I was starting to get a little tired of the year in, year out, doing the same thing, the same customers, you know, technology base. And and he said, you know what? Look, you're at the point now where you're going to have enough money to never have to work, and you've got enough money. The majority of the money you can donate to a foundation is like every year. The yes, in theory, we're growing and things are going great, and we we grew every year. Uh, he's like, but what is the payoff for that? From a risk perspective, I think you're better off take that money off the table, you know, de-risk your future, and then you can always start another thing down the road. And for me, that was the right timing. It had been seven or eight years at that point. And I was like, all right, I'm kind of ready. And I knew I'd have golden handcuffs for a couple of years. So I was like, looking forward, I don't want to get to the point where I'm just like really not wanting to go to work anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also, you know, not someone who I didn't want to manage a 500 person company where it's you manage people who manage people who manage people. You know, most hackers aren't right. Your your passion is <laughs> inventing technology. Yeah. Right. I love people, but I don't love process and big systems and bureaucracy and and all that. So it kind of made sense to make a transition and. Um, yeah, I was happy. Some of our founding team and uh, our first employee also invested 80 grand in the company. And I think he made over a million dollars when we sold. So it was cool to know they were getting a good return. Some of our early leadership team. 
And then for me, you know, my wife and I are both Christians, really felt strongly about using the company as a vehicle for, you know, how can we have an impact? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've been focusing on a, a number of charities that uh, we can then fund at, you know, ten, fifty thousand dollars a year kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And finding those and getting making that transition over to focus on that side of things was super exciting. And so, you know, we find yourself into <laughs> this early retirement and with this mission of we have all this money and right. we want to make sure we're doing something good in the world. How did you go about deciding what you were going to fund? What are the type of organizations that you're working with and, and what type of impact do you feel you're having? Yeah, great question. So yeah, it was uh, it was it, a lot of learning for me, right? Growing up very poor, moving to middle class was super exciting for me. You know, I had to, my wife literally yelled at me when we got married gently. She's like, why do your socks have holes in them? I'm like, cause I wear them. He's like, no, they have multiple holes. I'm oh. like, well, they're tube socks. You just rotate them and you keep wearing them until- You can tuck in between the, the toe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> until the sock doesn't hold together anymore. Right. She oh. kind of softened. She's like, honey, you're not poor anymore. We, we throw socks away when they get one hole. I was like, one, that's so wasteful. <laughs> so for me, moving to middle class, I had to make an adjustment about- you know, not, and I still find myself sometimes spending five hours to shop online for a computer part to save $20. And I'm like, rationally, I'm like, probably not a good use of my time. I need to be a little less frugal and a little like, you know, be more efficient with the money that I have. The same thing on the charity side, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So I had to, I bought books and I, I probably bought four or five books and learned about randomized control trials and counterfactuals and how do you measure impact in the charitable world. You know, in the for-profit world, you know, I, I, I don't know if you guys mentioned it, but I, I run 10X Venture Partners, mm-hmm. which yeah, is an angel group in New Hampshire. Yeah. And we started a small venture fund. And uh, so I was learning a lot about investing and it's much easier in the for-profit world because you know how to measure the return, right? You can, you're gonna put dollars in, you're gonna get dollars out. It's a pretty straightforward, it's still hard. There's a qualitative component sure. as well as a quantitative. But it's it's a well known field. But in the nonprofit world, it's 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 much more opaque, right? It's very anecdotal, very qualitative. Well, they're doing these good things. How do you compare if you can have? And I had served on a board member for United Way, and I love how United Way thinks about funding uh, needs in the community. They do a report of all the needs, and it's like low income housing and uh, you know school education and and uh, you know. But how do you compare? you know, 500 bowls of soup per month at the soup kitchen to Mm. 17 hours of rape counseling for people that have been traumatized versus three new beds at the homeless shelter, which is better, right? Like that's a, it's a really hard comparison to make. Mm -hmm. And it's very much about the needs and your value system and things like that. But within that, at least you can can compare 500 bowls of soup to 200 bowls of soup Mm -hmm. for the same dollar. Say, okay, well, we know which one of those is better. Uh, and so you, what you try to do is pick which areas you think are the highest impact areas of need. And then within that vertical, try to pick the ones that are the most impactful. So my wife and I, you know, as, as Christians are really motivated by looking after the widow, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, the marginalized, the the sick, the poor. How do you do that? Mm. Uh, so we fund a group called Hope International. They are doing a lot of work. They started microloans and now they're doing like community savings programs in third world countries. Uh, we went to Haiti with our church right after the uh, earthquake. And it was a super impactful experience seeing people that are living on $3 a day. Mm. Uh, we we had someone getting robbed like 10 feet from us because three of us or four of us bought $3 wristbands from a, a street vendor. And a local guy comes over and is trying to get him to give him some of the $12 he now has. And a mob is forming. There's like 20 people around this situation. Oh you just realize like how much 
homeless people in Manchester are better off than middle-income people in Haiti, right? If you're homeless, we've worked with some of the food pantries and soup kitchens in Manchester. Most people are not suffering from, no one is suffering from starvation, right? If anything, people have struggles with obesity, mm-hmm. um, even though they're homeless because we have food, right? They may not have organic, healthy farm-grown food, mm-hmm. but we do have access to food, right? They usually have a smartphone. Their kids get a free education. They can walk to a, a medical facility and get free healthcare. Uh, whereas you go to Haiti, you could break your arm, and that could be a life-threatening situation because oh you can't afford $70 to go to the hospital, which is a five-hour trek over a mountainous area to get to, right? Your kids don't get a free education. You literally, everyone is rail thin, and some people are like deathly thin, and you just realize how much we have in the U.S. and we take for granted. You know, for me, growing up in poverty, in American poverty, is very different than uh, what we see in other countries. Uh, Sports Visio, we were, we just did an all-hands meeting in Argentina um, a couple of weeks ago, and we were like tearing up because a young woman we just gave an award to uh, was sharing that when she was five, she was growing up in the streets in Argentina and someone was kind to her and said, the world needs more kindness. And uh, and I asked her about it afterwards. She said, yeah, I was literally selling stuff on the street when I was five. And if I didn't sell anything, I didn't get to eat that day. And you just realize like, that's not an experience we have in America, right? Tip, I mean, 99.999% of people, maybe some people, if they have, you know, drug addict parents or something might have very traumatic situations, but there are resources for food and housing and education and healthcare that, you know, can be improved and there's a lot to do, but in second and third world countries, it's a very different story. Mm. So for us, that was very motivating to try to get involved. Uh, we also do a lot of work with NICOZI, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, they're a very lean organization, only a few million dollar budget, and yet they're impacting Facebook, Instagram, you know, Backpage, and all these groups that affect billions of people and are helping, you know, young people not get targeted for grooming online and uh, rape porn and fighting against that sort of stuff that mm. affects so many people around the world. So for us, it's really about leverage, how much uh, the dollars that they have and what's the impact that they can have with that. Wow. Jason, first of all, um, I'm I, I I am loving this conversation because not only is it you know about the, your entrepreneurial journey, but doing the right thing and doing the right thing around you know your community and and people that that essentially need you as it were or need uh, what you have to give in, in a way. And so a big thank you for that. Um, you are busy with uh, obviously a lot of nonprofit uh, uh, activity and and a number of things. And in all of that, you are also the founder and CEO, as we mentioned, of Sports Visio. So um, what is Sports Visio and what was sort of the impetus of, of, of founding and growing that. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I uh, ran for state Senate here in New Hampshire, uh, which was not something I was super excited about, but (laughs) really felt a moral obligation. Uh, It's kind of like voting. Mm. You know, people say, if you don't vote, you can't complain about the candidates we have. Um, And that logic made sense to me, but I'd never considered the fact... The same thing goes for running, right? If if good people don't run, we can't complain that we only have crap candidates running. And uh, in New Hampshire, the state Senate only pays $100 a year. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a unique position in, in the U.S., right? The next lowest paid country uh, state is Maine at $16,000 a year. So many orders of magnitude higher. Uh, so to be able to run, you have to be independently financially um you know, sufficient because you've got four days a week, six months out of the year, you have to be dedicated to this role. So people had asked me to run. I ran. I lost by 3% to the incumbent. 
And uh, after that experience, I said, okay, well, what am I doing next? I'd gotten to the point where 10% of my uh, charity and uh, personal portfolio were in early stage tech companies. My friend's like, you probably don't want to go too far into that. I was like, all right, well, what am I doing with my time? Am I sitting on the couch? Am I just a stay-at-home dad and kind of hanging out with my kids? Am I volunteering? Am mm. I getting a job and donating my salary? And again, from that impact perspective, I really thought about it, kind of prayed about it, said, you know, I think the best thing for me to do is start another company. The expected value of that, you know, there's a 50% chance or whatever it fails, but if there's a good chance that it's successful, that will supercharge significant resources that I can pour back in the foundation and hopefully grow what we're able to give over time. Around that time, I uh, had this idea for a new company using AI and computer vision for sports. I've been playing basketball for about 30 years. All six of my kids played. I've coached them in basketball and soccer for 15 plus years and always wanted as an engineer who's very analytical, always wanted more data, always wanted to learn better how I can improve as an individual player, as a coach, as a, and for my kids, how can I help them? And uh, yeah, I've had this idea. I was driving a, a Tesla, you know, I have the self-driving car that can navigate at high speed or on a highway, instantaneously recognize, you know, threats, curves of the road, everything else. I'm like, the technology's got to be here. So I called some friends who were, and then I'm playing in a league and guys are talking about stats. And my kids would always ask me, how'd you do tonight, dad? I'm like, I don't know. I think I had <laughs> six points or eight points or All 10. Right, I and I can't remember yeah. how I did. And uh, so, yeah, I started calling some friends who were PhDs that I knew from DARPA and said, how hard would this be, right? Is, this, is the tech av available now? Mm. And they all said yes. And it was three, four people for a year to get a prototype out the door. And I was like, well, I, I could afford that. And then I called some customers. I said, would you guys pay for this? And the first two customers I called both offered to pay 50 to 100% more than I was thinking of charging. And it came out to like ten to $20,000 a year in revenue. So I was like, all right, well, I make a couple of hundred phone calls. Like maybe I have a nice business here. And I analyzed the market. It's probably about a $1.5 billion market globally for um, sports you know, analytics and, and, uh, and uh, video highlights for basketball. And then you add in soccer, football, lacrosse, baseball. You know, it's a 10 to $20 billion market. So I was like, all right, that's, that's a real opportunity. And uh, so I put a half million out of my retirement and uh, we raised 3.1 million in venture capital to kind nice. of build out a, the, the company. We've got 25 employees and I just got our first paying customer last week. So we're pretty excited about that. But yeah, the idea is, can we use AI to automate what people do today manually? So Huddle has like 2,500 employees and they pay people overseas to watch a video of a mm -hmm. game and manually type in the stats, mm -hmm. you know, Stats Perform has done the same thing. Synergy does that for colleges. Uh, and a lot of places will either have an intern or a volunteer or someone manually doing all this work. So we're saying, hey, can we do all that with AI? And uh, the results have been very promising. Nice. So who are the customer base for, for yeah. Sports Visio? Yeah, so it's basically uh, everyone below the NBA level. Uh, so pro leagues overseas, um, colleges, probably maybe not the top 30, 40, 50 D1 programs, but basically mm -hmm. everyone but that. Um, that doesn't have unlimited budgets. Uh, so it's the college, it's a men's league, it's an AU program, it's a high school, it's a middle school. Yeah. Men's um, kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Not> quite. <laughs> yeah, so we're targeting, we, we're trying to target, at least from our side, we're really targeting the program mm. um, because of the, the customer acquisition cost. We don't, you know, going B to C, you know, trying to sell directly to the consumer is a lot of work yeah. and they're going to pay a small yeah. amount. Right. Uh, but if you can sign a program, you know, especially like an AU club, right? They might have 18 teams they play 350 a piece, right, for their spring season, then the fall season, then a summer. 
I mean, that can be real revenue for us and and an opportunity for them. It distinguishes our program, helps the kids get recruited, helps mm. them because we not only get stats, but then we get video highlights of every play, every steal, rebound, assist, block, turnover. Wow. You can share those on social media. You know, we're building a bunch of really cool features of helping them with uh, branding and and uh, put ads in if they want to to get sponsors. And there's a lot of ways we can help the program grow while also, um, you know, getting a good return on the software we've developed. So how does this work? And I was going to ask the in, same thing. In terms of how the, this, those stats are being gathered, what kind of equipment are, are folks needing to, yeah. to implement this? Great question. So we're, we built it around a mobile-first uh, solution. Mm-hmm. So two, two iPhones or Android phones, you just set up on a tripod filming the game, and then it streams it to the cloud. We process all that on Amazon EC2 with our software. And then uh, you know some of the stats are like 99.9% accurate. Some of them are like 7580. So right now we have humans kind of still reviewing it to make sure that we have a really strong uh, experience for those first customers. And then as that AI gets closer to that 95 to 99% level, we'll kind of back out any of the humans and it'll just go open loop software. And the goal is to get that to real time. So you're literally at your kid's game getting stats popping up on your phone. Right now it takes about 10 hours for the AI to process. Mm. So we really turn it around in about a day. Uh, But our hope is within the next year or two that it's actually real time. Um, so yeah, we use a bunch of complex machine learning algorithms. Re- I'm learning about recombinant convolutional neural networks and all this uh, crazy I guess stuff. I'm learning that, about that too. Yeah, <laughs> 2D homography and stuff. We can plot player position on the court when they take a shot. So we can do like shot charts and heat maps of where your shots came from and wow. create the highlight clips. But yeah, it's really uh, it's really fun stuff. We have a team of PhDs. Uh, one of them was the chief scientist for AI for all of BA Systems North America. Another one was a program manager, DARPA, with me. He's got 25 patents from IBM Watson Research, founded multiple companies. So people much smarter than me. Uh, I get the privilege of learning from them every week and kind of understanding the stuff. And as a geek, I love learning new things and, you know, been doing cyber for so long. People ask me, like, why not start another cybersecurity company? And honestly... I don't like the defensive world in cybersecurity because so much of it selling to customers is about fear, right? You're mm-hmm, trying to, yeah. they, you want them to be afraid of this bad thing and, oh, you have a solution to solve that. Yeah. And it's also just crazy competitive. There's thousands of companies selling mm-hmm. thousands of products to these 500, Fortune 500 CISOs. But this market, it's it's a white space. There's no one doing this today. And so we have an opportunity to go in and you add value. They get excited and you close the deal and you move on to the next customer. And um, so it's been really rewarding uh, from that perspective. And also for me personally, just very fun to have a business my kids understand, my friends understand, nice. and uh, and that you can actually, um, you know, and I'm learning a lot through the process. As you went through development and beta testing all that, what were either the challenges or what were some of the surprises that, you know, as people were using the product and going, hey, can it do this? And yeah, like, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, another good question. You guys uh, clearly have done this before. Uh, so, yeah, I learned a lot. You know, I know one cha- one thing I learned personally was that I made a mistake of at DARPA, you kind of get ridiculed or kicked out of the building if you don't tackle what they call DARPA hard problems. Mm. Um, so DARPA was founded after Sputnik was this big surprise to the U.S. government. And so the goal of DARPA is to prevent technological surprise from happening again and to create technological surprise for, you know, adversary nations. Uh, so the goal is really these over-the-horizon inventions of things that don't exist and, and are disruptive. So GPS, stealth aircraft, uh, self-driving cars are things that DARPA was funding. So I took that mentality when starting the company and said, all right, we're going to build this all-AI system that's going to do all the stats and all the highlights and do it all in real time, like right off your phone. 
a year into it, I realized, hmm, that's kind of a hard problem. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's a lot. That's a from lot. a product perspective, we should have started with something a little simpler and mm. grown into it instead of just like working in a lab and hiring teams of people and spending all this money with no customers while we build this thing that's going to be doable but hard, yeah. right? So we've tried to simplify and say, okay, well, let's start off with like maybe an AI camera where we just film the game using AI and mm -hmm. have a single camera because one of the feedback we got from our early customers are two cameras are fine, but some of them were like, well, I only have one phone and it's a real pain in the butt to get a second phone and upload a second video feed and we have to process two video feeds. So mm. we're moving to a new model that uses an actuator and Bluetooth and you can have a single camera set up at center court, which will pan nice. left and right and track the game. Nice. And we're pushing our AI right onto the phone. So that'll be great. But it, like that probably would have been a good starting product. We could have gotten <laughs> that going in a year and then we could add on all the AI instead of trying to like, I don't want to say boil the ocean, but but really like eat the whole elephant at once. Mm. Instead, we should have taken a smaller bite-sized portion, built that, got that to market because you really want to iterate. You want to engage customers early and get that feedback instead of trying to solve all their problems at one fell swoop. So I think that for me was the biggest learning is I have to have to adopt more of a consumer product mindset, not this DARPA R&D sure. invention model that I had coming into it. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like we could just sit here all day and I could listen to you, number one. Um, but maybe, you know, I, I back up just a little bit before we wrap in a little bit here, but um, to sort of explain... AI and machine learning to the layman, right? Because you you uh, you've created this program that that is used, you know, machine learning and AI to to gather statistics. But how does the software or how does this program know that? How is that even created? Is it all just you tell me? Because I don't even want to uh, pretend I know anything about what I'm talking about. But I'm very curious about just how what the basics of AI and and machine learning. Um, and how you how it now knows what a basketball game is, as it were, right? I mean, that's a bigger question, probably an entire <laughs> podcast, uh, which I'm not going to be able to address here. But but at a high level, in the old days, machine learning was more, uh, and AI was more about rules. So they thought if we just programmed enough logic, and if then else, if this then say that, if mm. this then do this, here's a, a let a set of responses and weights you could apply. And uh, that just doesn't scale. It's a very hard problem. Humans can't encode all the knowledge into all the things uh, in all the scenarios. It's a, it doesn't right. it doesn't grow. Yeah. Uh, so they invented this concept called neural networks, which are modeled around the human brain. And it's all these like taps that basically don't do anything and weights across this like trellis network. And basically as data comes in, you filter them and you can apply the weights differently based on the data and you train it on large quantities of data. Mm. We don't understand what all the individual weights do even, which is kind of a problem in AI is explainability because it can reach conclusions that are correct, but we don't know why it reached the conclusion. Ooh. We just have this complex network with millions or billions of weights that if I put this in, it gets the right answer most of the time, but I don't know which one led to the right answer or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically, that that side of the field has won out because the more data with the internet, with Google and places like that, we have you know trillions and trillions of data points that you can feed into these neural network things, which now incorporate all these complex feedback loops that take that data and do pattern matching and say, okay, if I tell it all these things and I use reinforcement learning so I can take the output and say, yes, that's right, no, that's wrong, keep feeding it back in, it will then adjust the weight to say, ah, Every time I call this a cup, 
then he gives me feed positive feedback, says, yep, that was a cup. And if I say it wasn't a cup, then I'm wrong. They properly adjust the weight. So then they get really good at pattern matching and recognizing that's a basketball, that's a hoop, that's a person, that's the number 12, that's the number 11. That was a jump, that wow. was a shot. You can train it on all those things and it starts to recognize and you can do it on images or video or text, right? So chat mm -hmm. GPT yeah. has been a great example of that using these large language models for text, we're using, we're on the computer vision side where it's analyzing video feeds mm -hmm. and we're able to recognize patterns and say, hey, that was a shot. That was a ball. Here's a trajectory of the ball. Here's what went in. It went through the hoop. We see the net move and uh, it gets very, very good with enough data. Well, and AI obviously has been in the news, making lots of headlines lately um, and, you know, raising a lot of um, both excitement for the possibilities, some fears about the possibilities. As someone who works in the field, you know, what is your reaction to what you're seeing going on in AI and what excites you or concerns you? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, uh, it's interesting and, and can sometimes annoying how it's like dominating my Twitter feed these days. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is just talking about yep. it nonstop and yep. uh, existential risk. And there's one guy right now who's getting a lot of flack on the internet for claiming basically we should nuke countries that won't stop their AI research because he's so afraid of the existential risk. Um, I'm, I'm more of an optimist as a person in general, uh, but I also think that history is replete with examples of things that we thought were the end of society from the printing press to the internet to television to electricity, you know, and there's so much debate about Edison. They're like, oh, we're going to die. Electricity is going <laughs> to blow us all up. And I think in general, humans, uh, certainly humans will abuse AI. We're already seeing early examples of that. It's a very powerful technology. Yes. It will be abused by humans for mm. evil purposes, but it's also going to have ridiculously positive impacts from medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, I invested in a company called Piction Health. They're using AI to identify skin disease and skin cancer. Wow. Like, the founder had skin cancer three times. Mm -hmm. She's using AI to detect you know, all kinds of dermatological issues. So you see the transformative impact of saving lives and automating, uh, growing the economy and, and growing industries in major life-saving ways. And uh, I think we can't ignore that. And kind of the other thing is whether you wanted to or not, you can't, you can't reverse technological progress. So America could say, yeah, we're not gonna do this AI stuff anymore. We're gonna take all those opportunities and push them back in the bag. Well, it doesn't mean China is not gonna keep going. So, you know, the technology is going to advance. I would rather have a, a superhuman godlike AI intelligence that is on our side and helping us and giving safeguards to the American population right. than to be a third world country who is watching other nations make those decisions. Um, so we need to do it in a responsible way and think about the risks uh, as we move to kind of potential pure state warfare down the road, uh, what those risks are. And the AI itself, as it becomes incredibly, if it becomes self-aware, what does that mean for humanity and the risks there? But again, a lot of people are talking about those risks. We're paying attention. So I think, uh, you know, we can manage those. Hopefully, again, you don't know the future, but I don't think uh, we have much option other than to embrace that future and try to see the positives and take advantage of them and build in safeguards to try to prevent some of those downside risks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you obviously... Uh, 
through all of your success, encounter people all the time, especially with 10X Ventures who are approaching you as an entrepreneur. Uh, and, and you know, maybe they, maybe they want a deal or an investment or the advice or something. But um, what, what advice do you give to an entrepreneur who um, either may be at the point that they're ready to approach you or not quite there, but they want to someday? What advice do you give uh, based on all the experience uh, that you have had so far? So if they're in New Hampshire, I encourage them to look at the New Hampshire Tech Alliance, mm-hmm. which is a great uh, program of, of folks that help with mentoring. Uh, you can do pitch cam- uh, pitch review and like business plan review to try to understand the Small Business Development Council or committee, SBDC. Yes. <laughs> we'll help with that SBA. There's a lot of programs to help entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in their journey in terms of coaching and mentoring. Uh, the Tech Alliance is starting a new mentoring program, which I've signed up to be part of. To nice. try to give coaching and feedback to entrepreneurs. And then once they're at the point that they feel like they have a strong business plan, they have some early traction, they have an early product and a little bit of uh, some, they can have something to show. Um, then, you know, groups like 10X exist where we can kind of look at what they're doing and potentially give them an investment and and also connect them to other investors. So I, I run an investor group from Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts on Slack with like 85 people, all investors who run different groups to try to share opportunities to try to get access to capital because 10X might write a $100,000 check or $200,000 mm-hmm. check, but maybe they're trying to raise a million dollars. We can try to connect them to other folks to help them in that process. Got it. Got it. So there are a lot of resources out there. We've actually had, of course, the folks from SBA and SBDC here on the podcast. Um, and it sounds like mentoring is certainly something that uh, that is important for you as well. Did you have mentors uh, in, in this process? Uh, I can't say that I have. Okay. Um, I do do a lot of reading. So, you know, mm. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, LinkedIn, reading books and trying to like uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins was an informative mm. book for me. Sure. Um, so... I've not found folks, you know, usually the advice you hear is don't take advice from someone who hasn't been where you want to go. Uh, And I just haven't had a lot of folks, particularly around here in New Hampshire, that had the same career path that I did. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I rather unique. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) when you're going to new areas and you just don't know the people in those areas yet who have been where you're trying to go, it's Mm. harder to find a mentor. Um, But I've had personal mentors and uh, and then spent a lot of time online reading and connecting to folks that are in similar relationships, maybe as peers that I can kind of learn from. Uh, But yeah, it's definitely something I wish I had more of and um, and and when I have the opportunities, I try to pay that forward with other folks to, to provide the input that I wish I had. Because uh, a lot of times you end up having to learn things the hard way, which is really inefficient way of doing it yeah. in my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we wrap, uh, what's next say over the next five, maybe 10 years for Sports Visio? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're starting with basketball and starting just filming games and giving you stats and highlights, but we want to add... Uh, augmented reality type features for your kids, you know, so you can add a fireball on the hoop and on the <laughs> on the basketball, put the player in color, put a little circle like it's a video game, add yeah. music so they can share it on TikTok and things like that. Cool. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. We think we can automate the scoreboard operation, right? They're paying oh. people $20, $25, $30 a game to sit there and yeah. just increment the scoreboard, which is digital. To, it's usually a television screen now. So we think our tech, uh, that could be an add-on feature. You just automate that process for us. We can turn it, start, and stop the clock, Mm. uh, add the scoreboard. Uh, So that's another feature we can expand into. And then uh, we're rolling out a new AI camera, so it'll film the game. So maybe you don't care about stats and highlights, but you just want to record the game. You don't want to have to record it manually, so you can use our platform for recording. Mm. 
And then we're going to use that to expand into other sports like soccer and volleyball and uh, hockey or baseball. So starting off with the camera, as I've learned that lesson, start by entering with a camera and then over time add, you know, uh, maybe highlights of just goals and then add some analytics features and then add full stats over time. So that's kind of our plan. So we're going to build it up and and see where we are uh, five years from now and eventually, you know, may bring in a professional CEO if we want to scale and sure. go private equity or go public. And mm-hmm. I'll kind of move to chairman of the board because, uh, again, I can manage a hundred people, maybe a couple hundred people. When we get up beyond that, I, uh, I'll be looking for someone with more passion for growing a large company mm-hmm. um, or, or we end up taking a strategic uh, uh, acquisition route, if that makes sense as well. So, yeah, I'm excited uh, to see where it goes. Good. You've got a roadmap. You've got some plans. It'll all work out. I'm sure it'll all work out the way it <laughs> needs to. Uh, Jason Syverson is founder and CEO of Sports Visio, among many other things. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really insightful and really cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Chaz. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.